This podcast is made possible by Cloud Microphones, makers of Cloudlifter mic activators. Want to hear more of what your favorite dynamic and ribbon mics really sound like? Check out the entire line of Cloudlifters and get lifted. Learn more at cloudmicrophones.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. We first interviewed producer, engineer, Robbie Lackritz back in 2013. And since then, he has continued his work with Feist, Bahamas, and Jack Johnson, as well as made a move to California. Online publisher Jeff Stanfield caught up with Robbie to get up to speed on Robbie's latest work, talk drum sounds, and how parenting makes you a better producer. Enjoy. It sounded like you had a, a critical uh, turning point in your career in terms of the way you were thinking about it, where you were, and uh, some of that involved uh, Jack Johnson. And I thought that that was a, uh, worth talking about because I thought that was a pretty good story. So I guess my kind of like weird backstory is that I, you know, a lot of the albums that I made that were kind of like singer songwriter records were all, they were all sort of records where I would build a studio in a place. And I think as like anyone knows, you just kind of work obscene hours when you're really in something. And I would work till, you know, I actually enjoy editing. I mean, this is still true today. Um, but, you know, like my kind of best creative window always felt like midnight to four in the morning, sometimes like 11 to three, you know, like, but that kind of window for whatever reason is when things really work for me, especially editing. I just find like editing is a really creative pursuit. Like it's sort of like, you know, you can edit where you, you know, you can edit where everything is exactly snapped to grid and you'll get something that kind of resembles music, but you won't get something that resembles like humans playing music. And so I, you know, I had always found that, you know, in lieu of getting drunk or stoned or, you know, whatever it was that people use for creative enhancement, I guess maybe like extreme exhaustion was that for me <laughs> <laughs> or I don't, I mean, there might be something, I'm sure there's like an evolutionary like biologist out there that has like a really good explanation as to why I would be more creative at those hours of the night when the sun's down and things are kind of quiet. But I, you know, so the, the, if that's kind of the backstory, then, you know, what started to happen is when I was started to be in a serious relationship with my now wife and, you know, before I ever, before I even became a parent, um, I started to try and make records in normal hours and I just didn't feel like I was very good at it. I didn't, you know, there was something about like going away and being isolated and focused that like I could really, when I, if I was working like 120 hours a week on an album, then, you know, and barely sleeping or taking a break, I felt like I was doing great. I was having great results. And when I was like working in a studio in a city and I was stopping at 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. or what, you know, whatever it was, I felt like 
things were just kind of not coming back unique. They were coming back a little bit sterile. And I had, I was getting to the point by, you know, 2017, 2018, where I was just sort of like, I have other stuff going on in my career. I don't really want to do things that I'm not good at or that I'm not proud of. And so I had kind of slowly made the decision, you know, um, that I was gonna, I was gonna move away from working on records and, you know, and just work in some of like the other capacities in music. Actually, it's probably, it would have been 2016 because it would have been right around the time my, my son was born was like, uh, I think I'm, I think like, I'd rather just focus on being a parent for a while and see how that feels. And so, you know, what happened first was like Bahamas that who he and I have made, we've worked on all of his records together and he became a parent just like a year before I had. And so we were kind of navigating that world together. And I was, you know, kind of, I was explaining that struggle with him and he was like, he's like, yeah, well, you know what? I've been like writing songs in line at the grocery store. Cause that's when I have the most free time. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, yeah, I don't really found like a good window to like work on this. And he's like, so anyway, it kind of came down to a place where it's like, all right, I'll dip, you know, I don't, it's kind of good to move away from, from producing records, but let's give it a shot. Like we're both kind of in the same time. Like we're both kind of in the same period of our lives and, and, uh, we're both, you know, we're both kind of at a place where we can be like honest and I think open about whether or not we feel like we're doing a good job, you know? And we, so we made that, that was the first record that I, that was the first time that I had been away from my son who I think at the time was like four months old. And it was like the, the sort of like first record back. And I kind of thought like, all right, that's good. That was good. I'm glad that I did that. I think that that record came out great. I'm so proud of it. And then, um, and then, you know, my wife and I, at the time we were, we had, we kind of had this plan in Canada, you, um, at the time in Canada, the parental leave was, was a year. Um, and my wife and I had made a plan that we were going to go and use that time to travel and I could work from a laptop on the road and, you know, my, my wife would be off work. And so we, we were going to spend a little bit of time living in LA and a little bit of time living in in Paris and some other places and just like, just take a little bit of advantage of being parents and having a break and time to bond together and be a family. And, uh, when we were in LA, um, Jack, Jack Johnson's manager had called me about doing, um, doing a mix that they're, they're kind of normal guy. Rob, who who mixes his stuff, Robert Carranza, I think was just like tied up on, Robert does like massive records. And I think he was like tied up on like a Manson record or something. And they were, they like needed a mix kind of done last minute. And, and he asked me if I could do it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's no problem. And like when, you know, went in the studio and, you know, it was like, it just, the tracks were fine when I got them, but it just kind of felt like they were, they were missing a little, like they were missing something musically. And so, you know, I had just given that, I had kind of, you know, in a polite and respectful way, given that feedback back to Jack. 
and it got down the line and he called me about it and we just like talked through and found like a good solution. And then, um, and then, um, the following week, his manager Emmett had reached back out and said, you know what, Jack really, he liked working with you on that. He'd like appreciated your feedback. And, you know, if you're ever interested in coming to Hawaii, it sounds like he's ready to, like he's ready to work on a record, you know? So let me know. And, uh, I, uh, I was sitting in LA with my family, like, uh, and, uh, I had, I also, I, I manage Feist as well, who I have like a long lineage making records together with. And she had her record pleasure was coming out that, um, it was coming out later that spring and I was just like looking at my workflow and my schedule and just thinking like, I can't do that. Like, I don't have the time or space to balance this and it's just too much. Like, let's just, I'll just focus on that. And you know, thanks. Thanks Emmett. Like I really appreciate it. Like Jack, I'm a big fan. If just the bad, it's just bad timing for me. And, uh, Emmett's like, well, you know, just think about it and let me know if you change your mind. And, uh, so like a week later we had, my wife and I had decided to, we had decided to, spend half our time on the east side and half our time on the west side of LA when we were out there. And we were moving to our place on the west side that we had like gotten pictures of from VRBO. And we, when we got there, it was like, just not, not in any way as advertised. It was like broken back door and garbage in the yard and not in as good of a neighborhood as we had hoped for. And it just didn't feel like a good place to be like walking around with a stroller and so, um, you know, I said to my wife, you know, would you have any interest in like, instead of staying in this place, going to Hawaii for a little <laughs> bit? <laughs> She's like, what are you joking? And I was like, eh, not really. Like, do you want to go? And I called Emmett back. She's, you know, she was like, yeah. And I called Emmett back and he's like, yeah, man, when do you want to go? And I was like, like as soon as possible. And he's like, oh yeah, like a month or like when and I was like, like like four days like when's he ready like i'm ready to go now <laughs> and, uh, and we so we moved to the an airport hotel for like uh, for a few days and then uh and then we went to hawaii and then we started making that record i started making that record um all the light above it too with jack and got to spend you know a little bit of time in his world seeing how he approached family and like balances his like work life. And like, that was extremely important to see like, cause he, he's such a, he's like a person of great moral character and great values. And he, like just getting to see his, his like work life was, it was really special cause he, he and his wife built his whole career together. His wife manages him with Emmett and you know, really handles like all the nuts and bolts of their operation together. And his kids are like just sharp and well-behaved and it's like, Oh, you know, there's, there's a middle ground to here, you know? And then, um, yeah. And then sort of, you know, I kind of figured like, okay, well, you know, that was left, that left a nice impression. And I was like, well, maybe that's the last one. <laughs> and then after that, you know, earth tones had come out. And so, uh, I think it was, you know, by the fall of that year, we found out when like the Grammy nominations were, I got a text from like an unknown number that was like, 
you got nominated for a Grammy. And I just texted him back wrong number. (laughs) And they're like, no, no, no. It's, it's your, it's like, it was Bahamas publicist that was at Republic that was texting me. And, uh, and so, and then that record, so that record earth tones, which was the first record that I'd made as a dad (laughs) in daytime hours, had gotten nominated for best engineered record. And, uh, so anyway, it's sort of been like this funny path of like, I've continued to, I've like sort of tested myself by, I think making sure that the projects that I'm working on are the right projects for me and, and, uh, threatening to constantly walk away (laughs) has been a good, it's been a good measure of saying like, yeah, there's stuff that I just shouldn't take because I'm either definitely not the right person for it or I'm, um, or maybe they just value the their they put a different value on like the physical time that you spend working on a record and now i think i'm transitioning more into like the what i can add intellectually to a record and some of the just the time that maybe i'm not spending pushing recording or spending editing or spending like trying to think of um tr- you know like like trying to edit something into like the coolest version of itself I can just spend stepping away and thinking and when I actually come back and spend time in front of a console or computer, make sure that, you know, my ideas are really focused and, and as good as they can possibly be. Right. I mean, and that's an interesting change for you, of course, because you have been a producer, but you've also, I mean, you are so involved and you're with the engineering aspect of these records, you know, having listened to Feist and and Bahamas, I mean, you have a very, very distinct sound and tone to your records. I think one of the defining elements of that is your your drum sounds. Um, And I did want to dive into that a little bit, just in terms of like, you know, Feist's approach to drumming versus, and then some of the stuff that you've done on Bahamas. But I did want to like touch on a couple things that you, that you said. And one of them was when you talked about providing like really honest feedback, people really appreciate honest feedback because it's, it's a tough thing to criticize someone's art. You know, do you remember that Jeff Emmerich? Do you ever see that Jeff Emmerich? I think it was like a, a Red Bull interview where he like had mentioned uh, when he was working with the Beatles he'd like said a couple times like, yeah, oh, man, I thought they were going to fire me then. And then like a couple, like a minute or two later in the interview, it's like, yeah, I thought they were going to fire me then. And then, uh, the interviewer after like the third time that he said that he was like, how much, how often did you think that they were going to fire you? And he's like, paused. And he's like, without joking, sincerely just said, yep. Yeah, I would say almost every day. <laughs> and, uh, that really rang true with me because I think there's, you know, I think when you talk about, you know, there's certain, I think there's certain artists, especially like someone like Jack, when he gets to, when you're at a really like top, top, top level, you're either there because you're a great listener and a great talent and you're really incredible at, at listening and fusing together all of the things that it takes to be at that level and making it yours or you're there because you're abominably selfish 
and your vision is so good that your selfishness deserves to be rewarded on that level. <laughs> and it's a kind of a funny dichotomy, but it's got like in my experience, at least it's kind of true. And I mean, selfishness can get a bad rap. Like I think selfishness is a really important part of making great art because a lot of great art has to be boundary pushing and uncompromising. And so I think for me, like I, I would say, um, I've been in both scenarios and I don't necessarily think that one is better than the other, but I would say that one is better for me. <laughs> like it's definitely better for me to feel psychological safety in a working environment and feel like feedback can really freely flow both ways without hurting anyone's feelings or anyone's pride but that you also kind of buy in and understand like the format for that feedback and like like why would you tell somebody you know if you're going to tell somebody that you're like hey something's i think something's missing from this arrangement there's a lot of ways that you can say that there's a lot of ways that you can be right about that and also destroy your working relationship and your trust with that person and then there's a very few amount of ways that you can be right about that get the problem fixed and also like build your trust and working relationship with the other person and i think that's kind of what you're talking about is like it's like how do you like how do you establish the right level of psychological safety and trust in a working relationship with somebody and i don't i mean it, it's like in my experience it's not something that's like supernatural for me but the guys that are the guys and girls that are like really, really great upon first meeting people, like it's, I don't, I mean, to be honest, like the first person that even comes to mind is this woman, Cass Bird, who's like an unreal photographer, like elite, 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 top, top, top level photographer. And like, I just, I was in awe the first time that I ever saw, the first time I ever worked with her was like, she was shooting a Rolling Stone piece and I was, um, I was like tour managing at the time. It's a long time ago. And she, it was just like the way that she was able to build trust and give feedback and still give what she, to still get what she needed to kind of please her editors and her side while making the subject feel like unbelievably comfortable. It was an, it was like, I want to say that it was an art form, but I think it's also something that like came very naturally to her personality or, she had worked on to such a level that it became a very natural function in her work environment. And I'd like to believe the former, but the latter is probably, it's probably a combination of both of those things, I would guess. I think people appreciate not having sycophants um, all the time. And, and uh, you know, I think it really does let somebody know that you're invested and, and care. Um, and I, I'll tell you that, you know, and you're learning this now as a young, uh, you know, parent of a young child. It's like <laughs> communication and the way that you provide feedback is tantamount to success. <laughs> <You know? It's, laughs> some of the same, some of the same tricks will work on your children that worked on the artists that you worked that you worked with. Also, <laughs> I've learned.
<laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's just there's no question. And well, you know, and I think it's just like it's it's how to interact with people in a way that is compassionate. You know, it's just just having some some social grace. And I think people really appreciate that. For whatever reason, I think it's easier to forget in music over like other mediums, maybe because music is such a limited sensory art form. Like we're kind of limited. We don't really consider like like lots of times when we're working as an engineer, as a producer, you're sort of just staring at like blobs of audio that are getting recorded on the screen. And you can kind of forget like my, like the way that I smile and make eye contact and the, the tone that I use when I speak, all, like all of those things really, really, they really have like impactful value in how you build relationships with the people that you're working with. And I, I don't like, I don't, it's something that I have appreciated more over time because it's something that I've done very poorly in the past. And I think I've, I've suffered from it and not like suffer, suffered, but I think that I've, you know, I've, it has been detrimental. I have been detrimental to myself with my own behavioral, <laughs> with my own behavioral patterns. Yeah, maybe, but I mean, it would seem like from your, the artists that you've worked with, I mean, at least two, have you've had extremely long relationships with both uh, Afi and and Feist are are t people that you've worked with for th basically their entire careers, in multiple in multiple aspects of their careers. So I, I would give yourself probably more credit than you know. <laughs> you're, you're well, I learned I learned along the way because I mean with Leslie, it, like I when I started working with her, I was 23, so. You know, when we like when we were recording the reminder, I think I I, I don't think I could rent a rental car yet. Like uh, it, <laughs> it was just such a like I was so young when we when we started working together. So, I mean, it's also it's credit in a lot of respect to her too because she, you know, I think that we as adults we like when we look at our when we look at our peers or our friends our coworkers we kind of expect them to be frozen in time a little bit. But like when you're with, when you're around a 23 year old, they're going to be a drastically different person when they're 25, 27, 29, 30. And then, you know, hopefully at some point in their thirties, for God's sakes, they start to like settle into being a consistent human, you know? Like, I think that she always had a lot of faith and patience in me. And I have, I've had an, uh, a uh, blindingly naive confidence in myself <laughs> from the time I was very young and always said that I could do things that I probably wasn't as well equipped to do as, as I, as I actually was. Um, so it's a good, it was a good combination. It was a good combination of those two things with her. We were talking the other day about her sort of aversion. Well, first we were talking about, you, you know, uh, what really caught me was that I love the, I just absolutely love the drum sounds you get. And we were talking about the Bahamas record and how small that room was. And, um, you know, I, I think your approach to recording drums in such a minimal way is 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 very signature and, and actually interesting sounding rather than the kind of, quote, modern drum sound. Um, but aside from that, I thought your, your aside about Leslie being completely adverse to an accomplished professional drummer in any way <laughs> or drums in general yeah i mean for like 
There, I mean, there are, for what it's worth, there are drummers on her records, but the majority of drums being played on her records are not by like quote drummers. They're not modern guys that have, you know, they're not rolling to the, they're not rolling into the studio with like a selection of, of drums coming in cartage and a bunch of different snares and stuff. It's like her records, at least the, I mean the, I, I didn't, I didn't work on pleasure. I was, that was like in the middle of Dom's pregnancy. So I, I, um, but I like on metals, it was like a kind of rotation of just a bunch of multi-instrumentalists and drums was like one of the elements of something they do. But yeah, I've always, I do find it odd the way that like mixes kind of get built with like kick drum as big and low as possible. And we're going to listen to that for a long time before we introduce any other instruments while we're mixing. And then and then snare drum right after that as you know bright crisp and loud as it can go and then hi-hat hard on the left side (laughs) floor tom hard on the right side and you're like kind of inside the drum kit and it's like i don't really know any scenario where music should actually sound like that i think that's kind of ridiculous like even if i was standing in the middle of the band performing I still don't think I would feel like Tom's whiz by my right ear and my left ear as the drummer played a fill. And I think Leslie's like, you know, like Leslie's approach to arranging is, has always kind of been so pointillistic where it doesn't really matter. It almost seems like it doesn't matter to her what instrument provides what emotion and what context in, 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 and, and, in the context of a performance, it's like sometimes it can just be like a bag of stuff being shaken and it can be power. It can be really, really heavy and really powerful. And I think that she just innately has an attraction to using things in interesting and new ways. And I think that's probably why she has never really been on the, like on the like drummer tip because drummers effectively practice drumming. They like, you know, they practice to click tracks, they practice parts, they practice what other people play and learning other people's songs and, you know, perfecting those parts. And I think that those are all things that are kind of detrimental to the type of records that she makes. Like she wants you to be surprised by the ideas that are being used. And so why would you have somebody that had practiced or borrowed those ideas from another source? I think, I mean, I don't think that's her outward logic. I think that it just, I think that might be like the evolution of how she got to that style of, of record making. And where do you feel like you fit into that? I mean, are you just, um, I mean, you've had such a long relationship. Are you essentially just helping facilitate that, that end goal. The first record I worked on with her was reminder. And I think that record, she, she didn't want to use headphones if she, if she didn't have to, they called like, there's sort of this joke about headphones that they're like musical condoms (laughs) because you can't really hear what's going on in the space. You have something kind of like built for you. That's like artificial. And it's like, okay, now's the time when we'll be pleasuring ourselves with how things sound and you go into this space that's an unnatural space and so i think that like i think that record although a lot of that mic setup i want to say 
I, I, it's been so long. I think Renault was sick when we when we started making that record. Renault, who was one of the co-producers and and the, and the the other engineer, the um, I think he was sick when we started making that record, and he had kind of like passed forward his preferences, and so we kind of just set stuff up like parlor style and just recorded like, and they didn't listen to anything. They never came down to the control room to listen until I don't like they had probably already played through the first rotation of songs. And then, you know, it was probably like day four or day five when the first time that they like came into the basement where the control room was set up. Um, and then, so, I mean, that, like there was kind of an element of that where she didn't want to use headphones. She wanted to sing through an amp in the room. Um, they didn't really want to do overdubs at all. They wanted to do everything live off the floor, including the vocal takes. And I think the, like, because I was young, I was pretty young at the time. I think I was 24 then. I was just so psyched to be involved that I was like, yeah, I'll do that. That's fine. And so, you know, if we were editing at all, it would be editing like kind of the same way that you would splice tape and, we were, you know, and if we were doing overdubs, they would usually do overdubs in groups where, you know, we three people would do something at the same time. So you would kind of just have bleed. And then that kind of transitioned over into metals where like, if we're specifically talking about like drum approach, I think if you're like, if you're listening to my lineage of records, you should listen to the reminder, which is very important. Um, and then, and very, like very well recorded, and then you should go and listen to bar chords after that, which is Bahamas. Like f it's his second record, but the first record was really recorded in four days. It's really like pink strat is really just like a collection of demos that kind of came out. Awesome. Um, so you should like, but bar chords, if you go and listen to the drum sounds on that record, I kind of had this weird idea that we would capture any, we like the whole record would be captured in ambience and I didn't really want to use any direct mics on anything in that record. And so, I mean, it didn't, it didn't end up completely being the case, but you can kind of hear the different perspectives of like the, we were just, we were set up in a, like in like kind of like a cot, like a two floor cottage. And you can kind of hear like there's perspectives of like the different room mics that I used. And then there's no, that record, it's all natural ambience. There's no reverb on it at all. Barring, I actually built a plate reverb out of, there's like a, a sauna there with like a, with like a tin hot rock thing. And I built a plate reverb out of the thing that held the rocks that we used as the, that I use with like contact mics and a speaker. <laughs> um, and that's the only like quote unquote reverb that's on the record. Everything else is like the actual space. And I think that that record is really unique sounding and it's pretty cool, but <laughs> it's wild also. Like it's the tempos. Like when I go back to it now, I'm like, oh man, like I wish I would have thought more about tempos. Like there's a lot of cool mics being used. <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot of cool, like, like one mic setups being used on this record and the songwriting is rad, but man, I wish I would have got some of the tempos like slightly better. Um, anyway, and then you can kind of see, like, if you go from that record and listen to metals, I got the room mic thing figured out a lot better by metals. And 
and I think that, you know, that record, I think what I like the, it, like that record has a cohesiveness to it in the way room miking is used with the drums. Um, whereas like bar chords is, I, I mean, I think for its own, like to its own special unique quality, it's all over the place with room mics. Like the room mics don't necessarily put you into like a singular space where you feel like you're in a space with the person performing music. They more put you in like several spaces and give you different scenes and different rooms in a space. Um, but it's a little bit like it, it feels like when I kind of go back and, and look at that record, it feels a little less, cohesive to me than like a record like metals where i think you really get the sense of you get the sense of being in like one environment inside of that space with the band as they play and i love how that record sounds like i i mean i i think that that record it really you really get the sense that um you get the sense of the moment and that's one of my favorite things that I feel like I can accomplish when I'm doing my, like when everything kind of happens in the right way, like that's the, that's really what you want out of like, that's what I, that, I love it when that happens, when you just kind of get like, all right, there's a, there's a moment that got captured here. And no matter how much better they learn to play these songs or how much better they're recorded, you're never, ever, ever going to get this moment again. This is the only time you can have this moment with this group of musicians as they're finding these songs, like for the first time. Um, and I, that record was just, I think that record kind of, it was the best of all worlds from my perspective. Um, jump ahead from that record. Like if we're kind of talking about like my lineage with drum miking is, um, when I in when I kind of move back into like working in big studios again and I get into like Sunset Sound and we go like I go back to do Earth Tones with Bahamas. Um, I think we were in C at Sunset Sound. Is that the Purple Rain? What's the what's the Purple Rain room there that like Zeppelin recorded in? It's C, right? Yeah, with the custom yeah. Yeah. Yeah, on that Bushnell console, the yeah and that record was like we had so gadson so james gadson plays drums on the majority of that record and we kind of had one i was like okay cool so we can kind of do the best of both worlds we have like a big almost like jazz style studio like i wonder i don't know much of the history of that studio i probably should but it almost feels like a jazz tracking room like it's pretty live and then there's like a kind of dead room on the side and it was like, all right, well, let's just try how like Gadsden and Pino feel in the jazz room. Pino Paldino plays bass on it and, and we'll put those, we'll make a trio on like on the floor of the tracking space and just capture it and see how it feels. And then we'll put Gadsden's room. We'll put Gadsden in ISO too. We'll put another one of his kits in ISO. That's like his dead kit. And then we can kind of do more of like, Bowie style tightness. And, and that record was kind of like a transition point for me where I started, I, I stopped needing the, <laughs> I stopped needing to build custom studios in in like weird locations <laughs> to make records. And I was like, you know what, maybe this, there's something to this studio thing. 
<laughs> Maybe there's a reason why all these people have been, you know, maintaining all this incredibly professional recording equipment. And, uh, and, and they've been in business for 40 years doing this. Maybe it's something they're actually very, very good at. Um, so yeah, so like that was that record, I think for me was like transitional on drum sounds where, you know, I think that I was able to, I, I was able to do a little bit of like ambient kind of single mic sounds, but I was also to really get like James, like James being James, like you can't capture James Gadsden with one microphone. It's ridiculous. Like he, <laughs> he's just a, he's just such a special player. And I was afraid of losing that moment, the moments that I was going to have with him. Um, so I put up more microphones than I would normally put up and I liked it. <laughs> All of your trajectory to using more than one mic on a, on a kit. I mean, you're talking about things that you did with Leslie. I mean, no headphones, no this, no that. I mean, and, and like, that's sort of eye opening, you know, in a way to make a record and to be accommodating and still come out with something that's, um, a, a valid artistic statement for lack of a better well, term. I think also what I've kind of got the point that I've maybe have started to get to or started to observe is that you maybe just should always have new sets of rules in order to create new work. And I don't mean rules like, I don't mean rules like, you know, um, or you have to stop it, start at 9am and you have to stop it at 6pm. I mean, rules like, all right, this record, we're not going to use any percussion on, you know, like if we, if we want to have percussion, we're going to, you know, we're going to make it out of something else or rules like, you know, we're this record, we're not going to use any vocal effects on, it's going to be a dry vocal. It's going to be mixed super loud and we're going to make everything in the mix, like bend around the vocal. And I, I think there's kind of ways of like reinventing your creativity over time where, you know, like sad hunk, the new Bahamas record, it's couldn't be more of a 180 from how bar chord sounds. It's literally, it's so it's, I mean, it's whatever, there's three mics on the drum. So I really, I went to town. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> right. but it's like that those drums are recorded in the smallest closet you could possibly imagine. Like, I don't know how Don Kerr, the drummer who played on it, like, I don't know how he like, didn't have a nervous breakdown when he was in the closet being recorded. Cause it was, it's so unbelievably tiny and the drum sounds sound rad, but it's like, he had to, we we're like, all right, no toms. Let's just, <laughs> let's just see how everything, like, just like pick one symbol, hi-hat, kick, snare was sort of what Afy wanted. And then there's so few fills on the record, but it's just like groove. It's just groove heavy and it's just dry and dead in like the super, in like a super cool way. And if I, I never would have got to that place. I couldn't have done that in like, 2011 or 2012 because my head was just elsewhere but now you know it's sort of like a new and interesting type of challenge for me and what's kind of ironic about it is it's just like yeah yeah there's probably dudes that'll be listening to this that are just like yeah man 
we've all been recording in studios for 40 years, 50 years. <laughs> like <laughs> We all know how to make dead drum sounds. That was really cool when Bowie did it. We've all been imitating that since 1973. Uh, so thanks. Thanks, genius. I mean, that's just evolution. I mean, you have to grow or you, or you just, why do it? Yeah. And especially when you see like the nature of recording changing and the nature of like young people coming up now that are just coming up with these incredible skill sets as like multi-instrumentalists. And they've been able to use technology to reduce the knowledge needed to do an excellent job engineering, recording, editing to such an extent that like the roles of engineers like with you know like engineer engineers as we would have thought about them you know 20 or so years ago is significantly significantly reduced and so you kind of it's like the new kid coming up and like stuff that i've had come across my desk as like a mixer now there's a record i'm mixing right now for this artist sam weber and he'll like he'll ask me these questions like well, what can I do better? Like, do I need to get another microphone or do like, what, like, what do I need to get? And I'm like, dude, his recordings sound amazing. He's like in his, I think he's in his mid twenties and it's like, like they're better than recordings I make. And in, in a lot of respects, and like, I'm, I, I just feel lucky that I get to mix them because then I get credit for his great work on some, like I get credit for it being a part, like being a part of him being awesome. It's taken years to sort of untangle from the from the idea of like what's a pro recording and what's a good recording and what's a valid recording and I feel like y- you have continually put out records where it was they were more interesting. I mean, and and for whether or not you used a, a fifty-seven into a cr- cruddy mic pre in a in a weird space or <laughs> or whether it was totally intentional. It does, the end result is that it's an interesting thing to listen to and and it sounds like the product of Robbie and whoever you're working with, you know, over a career span, that that's a real, that's a real accomplishment. If somebody played me blindly, a bunch of your records versus other people's, I could, I feel like I could easily identify the, your work. That doesn't even mean that, that they all sound the same. I think that, that there's a character there that you've been able to maintain throughout your growth. That's, you know, kept it interesting, not just for the listener, but obviously for you. Well, thank you. <laughs> I yeah, I definitely more than anything I've had to find the right way to keep it interesting for me because I think that if I'm not interested by what I'm doing and I'm just doing it cuz it's like putting food on the table for me, then it's not making good it's not making things that people are interested to listen to. And there's enough music in the world and there's enough people that are that are incredibly talented and working their asses off that if I don't, if I'm not working to the nth degree of my abilities, I'm not going to be able to compete with that. Like there's just too many people doing too great, too great a work out there. And you have to, you kind of have to hold yourself to your own standards, you know? And I think for me, like doing less work was a way from, for me to hold myself to better standards was like, just don't try and take on stuff because you think it's going to be popular. Like do nothing, do nothing for prestige. I don't know if you've heard that saying before. Um, but, um, like, uh, I think that I, I think that if I'm working on something, I think I I have to work on it because I can genuinely contribute to it and what I can do will have a positive intersection with it, but that's not a giant percentage of records. It's a small, it's like an increasingly small percentage of records. So 
I'm, I've been getting like more and more careful as far as like, you know, who, who and how I can work on something. And sometimes I step out and make a mistake and like, just blow it. And, (laughs) you know, don't like, you know, like it, it, you just don't show up the way that you would want to, or your intersection with an artist is just not, it's just not a positive thing for both people. And those are, those are like soul crushingly brutal when that happens. And you know, man, this is something that these guys believed in, like they believed in you on some level. And they of course, like believe in their own work. And like when it doesn't work out, it's, Oh my God, it's the most painful thing ever. Um, I don't know. Should we just talk? Should we talk about getting fired? Let's hear some dirty laundry, Jeff. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. She